all of us have interacted with this very, very well-known story. I mean, it's one of the smallest books of the Bible. I think it's like 45 verses or so. It takes up about a page and a half in this massive collection. And yet, all of us have interacted with this story in some way. It could be you are a 2000s or 90s and 2000s youth group kid and you watched the VeggieTales version of this story. Um, You could have just heard it as an example of what it means for people to kind of um, be in the belly of the whale. Have you ever heard that term before? But we've all heard the story and the story that's commonly shared goes like this. You hear uh, of a guy named Jonah and God tells Jonah to go to a place called Nineveh. Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction. He ends up on a boat. Uh, He gets thrown off the boat. He's consumed by a whale. He's then spit out by the whale. He goes back to Nineveh and then Nineveh repents. And that's the end of the story in most tellings of it. Now, there's a lot of problems if that is the story that we've told. One, whale is never mentioned in the book of Jonah. The word whale. There is a word for whale. It's not in there. And why, why does he go to a specific place called Tarshish? What is it about there that we should know? I mean, it's kind of a big deal. We also never see Jonah repent. Not once does he actually repent for anything he does wrong. So is Jonah a good guy? Is he a hero? Or is something else going on here? And the biggest problem of all of those, if I could say, is that that story misses 25% of the book. Because there's a fourth chapter in which Jonah and God have an interaction that is one of the most mind-boggling chapters of all of Scripture that we're going to get to in a couple weeks. And so it's so common that you think that you know this story. And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack and actually see there are things in here that we think we know that this story is that actually speaks more to us than we realize. And so we're calling this series uh, Jonah the Antihero. And with the subtitle, When God's People Forget God's pursuits to love our enemies in divided times. I don't know if you knew, but we're entering into the next year of an election cycle. If anything of 2020 was a glimpse of what this year may be, God's people um, need to be prepared to what does it mean to be living in the midst of division and really, as Jonah will see, to love our enemies. So a word of warning for today. Today, we're really going to be learning to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. There are lots of things that this author of Jonah assumes that you already know. And so for us to really dive into this, we're going to start to unpack those assumptions that allow us to go into it. And so we're going to look at the four main characters of the book of Jonah that we see in the first two verses that's going to catch us up to speed on this riveting book. So, Jonah 1.1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Arise, 
Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil, their evil has come up before me. The first character introduced in this is subtly introduced in the first word of this book. You see the word now. In the Hebrew, it's the word and. So you could actually translate it this way. And the word of the Lord. Why in the world would a book begin with the word and? Like why the conjunction? Any like conjunction junction fans out there? What's your function, right? What's the function of the conjunction? Well, it's to connect something. Why would the beginning of a book start with something that it's connecting to? And the, and the main thing <clears throat> that's in this is that this book is part of another collection that's 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 all connected. And so in our minds as the readers, we have to understand where all the connections are. So let's come to a little bit of an understanding of that. This is a picture of how our Old Testament is um, ordered and structured. So in the Protestant Old Testament in your Bible, it's structured differently than it was in the time of Jesus. So this is our ordering. So you have the first five books of the Bible. Uh, it's called the Torah or the law. Sometimes it's called the books of Moses, uh, the Pentateuch, penta meaning five. So and that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then our ordering goes to the right, the history books. And that takes you from the time when Joshua enters into the promised land all the way to Esther in exile. History books, right? Then you have the wisdom literature, also the poetic books sometimes it's called, uh, Job all the way to Song of Songs. And then you have uh, two groups of the prophets. You have the major prophets and the minor prophets. The only thing that makes one of them major and some of them minor is the size of the book. Okay? That's it. Not insignificance, it's just the size of the book. So, this is our ordering. Now, if you look at this, you're like, okay, history books. Well, that, if I understand the history, then I just need to know this king before this king. And it's almost like a, you're reading it like a history book. But I want to show you the order in which the author would have likely assumed and Jesus would have understood it. And it's got this cool graphic. It's called the Tanakh. So when you hear people call the Old Testament, like you got to get guttural. So say Tanakh. Now you get that, like you got that phlegm right there. That's a guttural sound. So this was the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is ordered differently. The first five books of the Tanakh are the Torah, right? Three Hebrew letters. Um, and those are the same as our law, the same Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But then they have this uh, section called the Nevi'im. These were the prophets. Notice what's in their section of prophets. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. You know how we have 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st, 2nd Kings? They, theirs is one collection. It's one book. And then you have, and so that, those are the former prophets. And then you have the latter prophets. And in the latter prophets, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you have the 12. The 12 are our minor prophets. The 12 would have been a single collection. 
So if you were to have a scroll of the 12, it would have all of the minor prophets. So it would have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Sevaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi in one book, one collection. And the assumption is this is one kind of narrative that's trying to teach you to some, something. Jonah is in the midst of the 12. Okay? So when you're reading, and then it goes into what's called the Ketuvim. These are the writings. Um, so when Jesus says all the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms uh, point to me in Luke 24, what's the first book of the Ketuvim? Psalms. So what he's saying is all three sections of the ordering of the Bible are about me. So, and you see the, uh, the writing Psalms, Prophets, Job's, and then you have the Megdalot. These are the uh, scrolls that were read during feasts, right? And then you have the, uh, the ending of Daniel, Ezra, and it actually ends with the book of Chronicles. Okay, so this is the ordering. Now, remember, the, the, this book begins with the word and. So what it's saying is this, what we're about to read is going to connect you to the rest of the scroll of the, scroll of the 12. And the scroll of the 12, as a latter prophet, is also going to connect you to the collection of the Nevi'im, which is the, um, the prophet's. And because the prophets are connected to the whole thing, this is also going to connect you to the rest of the book. So when you're reading the Bible, we are always wanting to ask the question, what does this remind me of? Where have I seen this before? Is this, is this a, uh, a template that is being followed? Are they actually, there's a template and they're twisting it? They're inverting it? Like these are all devices that the authors have in, at their disposal for, to bring the truth to bear. And I, this is one of my favorite pictures. Um, a lot of people use the term, and Tim Mackey uses this a lot, uh, that the scriptures are the most hyperlinked text or in the ancient text. So if you were to uh, look at the scripture like a website and you see the bold blue underline and you press it, it would take you to something else. These are the 65,000 uh, cross-references internally in the Bible. Jonah is like right here-ish. Okay? It's easy to find because these are the chapters, the length of chapters. You know this long chapter, that's a long one. You can kind of figure out that from there. So, so this is a, just a picture of the way the hyperlinks or the internal references are within the Old Testament. This is both old and new. And this is ordered in the Protestant ordering, okay? Why is this important? Why do I start with this? There's this understanding that the scriptures in our culture are this archaic, ancient, out of touch with reality, unsophisticated book. Because it has an understanding of things that are different from our scientific modern world. As we're going to come to discover that the way that they understood the design of the world, especially when it comes to the fish, the fish was under the rule of God. It's pointed elsewhere. It's not a surprise. This is not the first time you see a big fish. Okay? 
you, you start to see all of these connections, but it's different than how we view the world. And so a lot of people have this, it's, oh, it's archaic, it's ancient. But I hope we start this book with, do you see the beauty of the Bible? Like, do you, do you look at that? And is your heart not stirred by how magnificent the scriptures that God gave us actually are? That this is not some, it is absolutely an ancient text. It absolutely is. And the way they think and the way they write is different than the way our minds work. And so we have to do the hard work to understand it. But does this, this should bring and stir our hearts that this is not archaic, but this book is actually extremely sophisticated. These authors know their stuff. They are masters of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, what does Psalm 1 say? Who is the blessed man in the beginning of the Ketuvim? What is the first verse? Blessed is the man, and it goes on to say, his delight is in the law of the Lord. It meditates on it day and night. So who is the blessed person? The person that's always thinking about it, that loves the scriptures, that meditates on it, that thinks about it, that processes, through, sees the world through this. So as we begin Jonah and seeing its grander connections, may it stir us to want to get into it. Not because we have to, but to love the word that God's given us. Because the, this, as Jesus says in Luke 24, points to him. So the more we get into the Old Testament, the more we get into the book of Jonah, it's going to bring us to a more awareness and love for Jesus himself. So the first character that we're going to be thinking of is Jonah, excuse me, is the scriptures. Second character is uh, Nineveh. So when I say the word Nineveh, in your mind, you should have bad guy music playing. Okay, so like Star Wars, what's the bad guy music? Oh, come on, guy. Dun, dun, dun. Like that, when you hear Nineveh, you should have Darth Vader music happening in the background. Like it's just there because you should, there's this, it's just, you'll see in a second. So we have to ask various questions when we interpret the Bible. I just mentioned this. Are there other times I've heard this before? Are there other times that Nineveh has been introduced? Have, have I, are there moments when, this has been uh, presented. Are there other times that there has been a cry that's gone up to or before the Lord because of something great? See, specifically a great evil. And then God does something about it. So these are questions that we're, we're always looking for the hyperlinks. We're always looking for that. So where are that? And as we will come to discover, it often brings us back to the early chapters of Genesis. So let's go back to that because there are other stories when a great city does evil and their wickedness goes up before the Lord that leads to a great city doing something bad. And it goes back to Genesis chapter four. Let me summarize this for you so I don't take hours teaching. In Genesis chapter 4, you're introduced to characters named Cain and Abel. Okay? 
Um, these are the, the children of Adam and Eve. What was Adam and Eve's responsibility? To rule and reign over the uh, creation, to be image bearers. They choose to believe a lie. They rebel. Cain uh, the, the, has a brother named uh, Abel. They both uh, uh, make an offering to God. Only Abel's is regarded by God. Cain, and then God gives him this uh, warning. He says, hey, sin is crouching at your door, but you must overcome it. Okay? I'm summarizing here. In essence, what God is telling Cain is, you know how your parents are supposed to rule and reign over the beasts of the world? You now have a beast that's called sin, first time sin's used by name, that's wanting to overtake you. Your job is to overtake it. Okay? What happens? Cain does not do that. And what happens? God comes to, uh, God comes to Cain. And what does he say about Abel's blood? The blood of your brother cries out from the field. Somebody does something evil. Somebody cries out. And now Cain is the first murderer in the scriptures. And then he goes and Cain builds the first city found in the Bible. There's no city mentioned before Cain. It's a city of blood. It's a city built on this understanding of sin being overtaking somebody. And now that's the framework of a city. Cain is also told that um, his, uh, he will not be avenged for, like if somebody's gonna come after him, you're going to be avenged. Now, fast forward. Six generations. There's a guy named Lamech. I promise this all connects. Lamech. What happens with him? He is seven times worse than Cain. He says, uh, if Cain's been avenged sevenfold, I will be 77-fold. So if you're anybody like metal fans, avenge sevenfold, that's where it comes from. Okay? So, and Lamech, what does Lamech do? If Cain builds a city, Lamech is the first one that builds a kingdom. So this is what your brain's supposed to think. Cain, murderer, city of blood. Generations later, it multiplies and gets worse. So if from Cain to him gets this worse, what's it going to mean later on? Gets to Genesis 6, which is the Nephilim. This, these are like the giants, the spiritual beings that come and impregnate women and we're just going to leave that there because we don't have time for that massive story but there they become warriors this then takes us to genesis chapter 10 genesis chapter 10 i'm going to read this so after after the flood uh, noah has sons and this is genesis chapter 10 this is called the table of nations Remember I said, we're loving the Lord with all our mind for a second, so follow me. It says, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. Literally rebel. Okay? He was a mighty one on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Genesis 6. Therefore it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. In the Bible, Babylon is always Babel. There's no difference between the two. So when you see a kingdom of Babylon or the empire of Babylon, it's always the empire of Babel. This guy, 
created Babel and these three other, Arak, Akkad, Cain, in the land of Shinar. From that land, so remember this generation of evil, the city of blood is progressively getting worse. He creates a kingdom. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh. And Rehoboth, Ur, and Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. And oh, look at verse 12. What does it say? And that is the great city. In the Hebrew, it's and that great city. Nineveh, that great city is only used two times in the Bible. Both of Nineveh. Here in Genesis 10 and once in Genesis 1. So what is it trying to get you to think? The city of blood that's based on murder, that cries out before God, generational impact gets worse and worse and worse to the point where even after the flood, when God cleans up everything, it gets, it's still there. And you now have this location that you would know is the worst of the worst. And historically, the Assyrians were the worst of the worst. They were violent, treacherous, The historical accounts of what they did to people that they conquered was treacherous, skinning them, and, I mean, just nasty, building out the city of blood stuff. This is all leading us to see that the evil that is within humanity can exponentially get worse and worse and worse as we drift further from who God is and what he's like. For Jonah, the Ninevites, this evil, these were the people that deserved God's love the least. They were, they were the city of blood. They were the worst of the worst, the most violent, the most oppressive, the most evil. This, um, we're going to, every week there's this, uh, a set of poetry by a, a person on the book of Jonah, and I want to read a poem every week because it just does something. And so this is, uh, this is a poem that is called The Reprimand of Naive Deity. So imagine Jonah saying this. I will not advertise this crazy scheme of yours. God, what a farce that men should sin and find escape. I mean, of course, not me, but all our mutual antagonists. Dear God, kind God, don't listen to their prayers. What has Jonah and this what has this led Jonah to, if you can imagine this? There's that they are undeserving but I am deserving. They are evil and violent, but I and what I am all about, I'm on your side, God. And so there's this understanding of the evil leading Jonah to think that there are certain people that are undeserving of the love of God. And I'm sure that's never happened to any of us. Who are the people that you think are the least deserving to hear God's love? The people that you disagree with and divide over issues the most. The ones you think are defiling a generation. It may be even people in your personal story who have hurt you and hurt your family. 
because of what they have done, they don't deserve the gospel. They're so bad. They're so evil. They're so violent. They are evil. This, the city of blood overtaking in this generation. Who are those people in your life that are undeserving of God's love? That's what Nineveh represents. That's the bad that Jonah is now interacting with. And what does God do about these evil people? He sends them a prophet. This is the third character of the story, and it's the somewhat main one, and it is the person of Jonah. So character number three, the person of Jonah. Like I mentioned, the question that we're always asking is, is, he, is this person something introduced somewhere else? Have we seen this before? Have we heard of this guy before? And what does that have to do with it? Well, this is not the first time in the, outward, the working out of Scripture that Jonah is introduced. Jonah is also mentioned in 2 Kings 14. Uh, I'm not going to read it. You can see it behind me, but let me just tear, uh, summarize this for you for a moment. Jonah, there's a really bad king named Jeroboam II. Uh, this guy, this God saw his people of affliction and jo- Jeroboam always did what was evil. Now, Je- like other prophets around the time of Jonah, when the king does bad, Jonah's supposed to speak against the bad or the prophet's supposed to speak against the bad. They are kind of like the, um, the balance to the king. But... The, when we're introduced to Jonah, he never speaks against the bad of Jeroboam. All he does is gives a thumbs up to the extension of Israel's borders. So the king of Jeroboam, even though that is a sign of God's blessing, he went about doing that in evil, violent, wrong ways. And, and Jonah, rather than reprimanding him or speaking against the evil... He only gives the thumbs up about the good. So we're starting to get a little bit of a glimpse of Jonah. Jonah likes his nation when the borders are getting more solidified in the way that he wants them. We're starting to see his heart not for the other, but for his people only. Amos and Hosea would speak against the injustices, but no, not Jonah He only gave the thumbs up. Regardless of the ends, the means were evil. So we're introduced to him in that. But in this passage, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That should indicate in our brain, remember hyperlink, this is a prophet. And so there are, there is an expectation of what a prophet is supposed to be like. Let me give you a metaphor for this, okay? So, uh, Star Wars fans, this is for you. In the, the second, or the last trilogy, right, you get to the second movie called The Last Jedi. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know that there's a certain, certain things are supposed to happen at certain times. When there's somebody that's in a distant planet that's covered with sand, all of a sudden finds a relic that then brings them into this massive um, journey 
You don't know who they are. You don't know where they're from, but they have these powers. They, they are introduced to these guides along the way. And then it builds to the point when who is the bad guy is supposed to reveal who the character is. I'm giving you the story, almost all of the stories, all the trilogies, the template. And then they find out who they are. They become this massive hero and they save the day, right? That's the template. The Last Jedi, it, get, it builds to the moment where they're about to tell you, this is Kylo and Rey. This is who the hero's identity is. It's Kylo and Rey in this dark room, just like it was in The Empire Strikes Back, about to tell you this is who she is. And what, does, what happens in The Last Jedi? Kylo goes and says, you're a nobody. You're nothing. You come from a garbage heap. As Star Wars fans, you, most people were absolutely offended by this. Why? Because it didn't follow the template. Like, this is not what a Star Wars movie is supposed to do. Because a Star Wars movie is supposed to be like this. This is not a Star Wars movie. Kick it out of the, out of the canon. Jonah is the last Jedi of the Old Testament. Because every move along the way of what Jonah is supposed to do, Jonah does not do. Because this is the template. Here's a, a picture that is... Um, uh, I'll just summarize it. And this is really summarized in Moses. In the beginning, there's this Eden-type setup. There, there's violence in that place. A chosen one is rescued. Typically, it happens through water. There's some water that happens in the story of rescue. That person then goes and intercedes to God on behalf of the people. And then there's this covenant confirmation. So think of Noah, for instance. That violence, it's always violent. He's chosen. He's rescued on an ark in water. He then confirms, um, he intercedes as a priest afterwards, and then it confirms the covenant, right? Moses, he's in the land of Goshen, good land. There's violent. Egypt becomes a great evil city. Moses is rescued. Do you know what Moses is put into when he's a baby on the water? It actually is the word ark. Moses is put into an ark. He's saved on the water. He's chosen to be the one that will rescue his people from the land of Egypt. Fast forward a little bit of time. They are out of the water. They um, are in the prom went walking to the promised land. Moses is up on a mountain. God's people, while Moses is up on a mountain, what do they do? They, kill, they create a golden calf. Moses comes and sees it. He goes back up to God. And what does God say? I'm, I, I, I'm just going to wipe these guys out. I, I, I regret these. And what does Moses do? He intercedes. He says, hey, two things. One, bad PR move. Egypt's, Egypt's going to say what you're like. And secondly, God, this is not what your character is like. Then Moses recognizes that atonement needs to be made. Somebody needs to be sacrificed. Something needs to happen to make this right of what they did. What does Moses do? He offers himself. He says, hey, if you're going to take them out, don't take them out. 
take me out instead. They are evil. They are representing the violent city of blood. Something needs to happen about it. I should be the one that's taken out. And what does God do? He hears his prayers and he confirms the covenant by giving them the most famous verse, most used all the Bible. Jonah's job, the expectation was that he would intercede on behalf of the city of blood, even being willing to offer himself on its behalf so that this, these people can come to meet Yahweh. And what does Jonah do instead? The exact opposite. Jonah has a standard that he is to live up to. He has expectations of what it means to be a prophet. And he does not live up to them. If the city is, if we look at the world as evil, we also have to recognize that sometimes God's people also don't live up to the standards that God has given them to live. We don't live up to the standards. And and if we're honest, forget living up to God's standards. We don't even live up to our own standards sometimes. How many times have you said, I will always do blank? I'm, I'm committing to blank. And about a month later, you're not committed anymore. People are like, oh, I, I can't live up to God's standards. I'm just going to run away from God's standards and make my own standards. Well, there's something about humanity that I can't even live up to my own standards. It doesn't matter whose standards. There's something about people that we can't live up to the standards that's placed before us. And rather then lay down our life on behalf of the other, even our enemy, we choose to push them aside and do our own thing. I mean, let's be honest. We are Jonah. I know what's asked of me, and I don't do it. I see people that I don't want to hear, know the gospel. There's people that I think are undeserving, And instead of doing what God does to send people to him, I actually oppose God's pursuit of his people. I I go the other way. I I, I turn the other cheek, but not in the way that Jesus asked us to. There needs to be some sort of person that could come and intercede on behalf of the evil, violent, and and rebellious people, even God's people. And this is where the fourth character is introduced. We we have have the first character is scriptures, Nineveh, Jonah, and ultimately the story is about God and the pursuit of all nations. From the foundation of the world, God is the one who pursues people. He creates them, he knows them, he clothes them, and he pursues them. You see this in Genesis, you see this in the choosing of Noah, you see it in the choosing of Abraham, over and over and over again. The constant theme of the story of the Bible throughout all of the Tanakh is God's pursuit of people, and including his enemies. This is not the first time that God chooses to pursue people that are actually in rebellion against his people. Now, these may be one of the worst, but 
It's not uncommon that God pursues even the most treacherous people, and he gives them a chance to repent. This is what one scholar, his name is Daniel Timmer, he says this. He says, oracles against non-Israelite nations are not cl- that are not clearly unconditional do not simply pronounce doom without exception and without hope. They open the door to repentance and deliverance. The fact that God is choosing to send a prophet to an evil, violent people shows that God is open to them to repent. And we find out in this story that they do that. But as the reader, you'll also know that in 2 Kings, 14 were introduced to Jonah. In 15, Nineveh overtakes Israel. So somehow, this book is situated between 2 Kings 14 and 15. So we know, as a reader, this doesn't last. But he, even God knowing that, he still pursues. He still goes after. He still offers hope to the most treacherous of people. In the last verse of Jonah, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, when he's having this amazing conversation with Jonah, he says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? What? What? We'll talk about the animal thing another time, hopefully. That's weird. Why, in the, why talk about animals? But listen to the heart of God. Jonah is ticked off that God would love people that he does not love. And God's response is, why would I not have compassion on these 120,000 image bearers of me? Why would I not want to pursue them? Jesus himself quotes from the book of Jonah. And he says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the grave. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all four of the characters. Jesus is the fulfillment of all, as Luke 24 says, all of it points to him. The city of blood and the evil, the people that we think are undeserving of the, of the gospel. Jesus is the true prophet that goes to them, that shows God's pursuit of the evil and most violent people. He is the one who ultimately loves his enemy. Jonah is a picture pre-Jesus of what God's people are like when they're called to love their enemy and pray for those who persecute. Jonah is a picture of what we are like when we're asked to love our enemy when we don't realize that we were once enemies of Jesus himself and he pursued us. We were members of the city of blood. We were apart from God, children of wrath. And Jesus the prophet went into the belly of the grave three days and three nights to show God's pursuit of us. And so as we get into Jonah, as we look, I want you to be asking the questions that we talked about a little bit today. One is, is, do you see the Bible really as that beautiful? 
Are you stirred by it? Who are the people in your life that you think are undeserving of God's love? What are the expectations and standards in your life that maybe you've put on or maybe even others have put on, but even God has put on that you don't have the ability to live up to? And how are you in need of God's pursuit of you? of him revealing his love, him showing how he is the one that while you were is an enemy, he's now made you a child of God. And this is why we get to go to the table. We go to the table as a reminder that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus, by the Spirit, is the author of all the beautiful hyperlinks that we saw in that picture. Jesus went into the city of blood, went into the kingdom that was rebellious against him and loved his enemies. Jesus perfectly did what the father did, perfectly lived according to what the template was and what was asked of him. And he ultimately showed God's pursuit of you and me. And we go to the table to remember and uh, be reminded of his pursuit, his body broken, going into the grave three days and three nights. His blood being shed for the forgiveness of us being members of the city of blood. Atoning for us, offering himself as a sacrifice to intercede and confirm a new covenant. And we are the recipients of God's love so that we can be the extenders of God's love.